Answers to some misgivings. Now I shall address some of the misgivings which have been expressed to me by some seekers of truth for reply. Most of these misgivings are those that Abdul Hakim Khan, assistant surgeon Patiala, has either through writing or speech planted in the hearts of people and has thus set a seal on his apostasy that will perhaps last until the end of his days. I have given answers to these few misgivings on the insistence of Munshi Burhanul Haq of Shah Jahanpur, who humbly communicated them to me in his letter. I give the answers below after reproducing the exact text of each question as contained in Munshi Burhanul Haq's letter, and all strength comes from Allah. Question 1 On page 157 of Triyakul Kulub which is one of my books, it is written. Let no one entertain the suspicion that in this discourse I have considered myself superior to Hazrat Masih, the Messiah, for it is a partial superiority which a non-prophet can have over a prophet. Then on page 257 of the Urdu Review of Religions, volume 1, number 6, it is stated that God has raised the promised Messiah from this Ummah, who far exceeds the first Messiah in his glory. Again on page 475 of the review is written, I swear by him in whose hand my life is that Hazrat Masih ibn Maryam, Messiah the son of Mary, lived in my time. He could never have performed what I can. I could not have shown the signs which are being manifested through me. The crux of the objection is that there is a contradiction between these two statements. The answer. Bear in mind that Allah the Exalted is well aware that I am neither pleased nor interested in being called the promised Messiah, nor in proclaiming myself superior to Masih ibn Maryam. God has himself testified to the inner depths of my conscience in his holy revelation as he says, meaning that, tell them, as far as I am concerned, I do not want any title for myself. In other words, my aim and objective is higher than these thoughts. Bestowing a title is an act of God. I have no influence in it. The question remains why it has been written so and why such a contradiction has occurred in the statements. Ponder over it and realize that it is the same kind of contradiction as I had written in Barahina Ahmadiyya, that Masih ibn Maryam would descend from heaven, and later I wrote that I myself am the Messiah, was to come. The reason for this contradiction was the same. God Almighty had named me Isa and Brahine Ahmadiyya and also informed me that God and his messenger had prophesied my advent. But as a body of Muslims was firm in the belief and I too held the same belief that Hazrat Isa would descend from heaven, I did not wish to take God's revelation for its literal meaning but interpreted this revelation and maintained my belief in connaissance with that of the Muslims at large and published the same in Brahina Ahmadiyya. But afterwards, divine revelations regarding this descended like rain, affirming that I am indeed the promised Messiah who was to come. Along with them, i.e. the divine revelations, appeared hundreds of signs and both the heaven and the earth arose to testify to my truthfulness. The bright signs of God compelled me to realize that indeed I am the Messiah who was to come in the latter days. Otherwise, my belief was that I had set forth in Brahina Ahmadiyya. Moreover, not relying entirely upon it, I sought adjudication for my revelation from the Holy Quran. 
It was established by conclusive verses that Isa ibn Maryam had indeed died, and the last Khalifa, Vice-Jiran, would appear from among this very Ummah, under the title of the Promised Messiah. And so darkness remains after the dawn of day, in the same way hundreds of signs, heavenly testimonies, conclusive verses of the Holy Quran, and definitive and explicit ahadith compelled me to accept that I am the Promised Messiah. It was enough for me that God should be pleased with me, and I had absolutely no desire for such a thing. I led a life of seclusion, and no one was aware of my existence, nor did I desire that anyone should recognize me. He forced me out of my solitude. I had wished to live and die in obscurity, but he decreed that he would make me renowned with honor throughout the world. Therefore, ask God why he did so. What is my fault in this? Similarly, I initially believed that I could not possibly be compared with Masih ibn Maryam since he is a prophet and one of the distinguished men of God. Therefore, whenever something in my revelation appeared concerning my superiority, I interpreted it as partial superiority. But later, when revelation from God Almighty descended upon me like pouring rain, it did not permit me to persist in this belief. The title of prophet was clearly bestowed upon me, albeit with the proviso that I am a prophet in one aspect and an ummati, follower of the Holy Prophet in another. Footnote start. Keep in mind, quite a few people are misled when they come across the term prophet with reference to my claim. They think as if I have claimed the kind of prophethood as was vouchsafed directly to the prophets of old. But they are wrong in thinking so. I make no such claim. On the contrary, the wisdom and providence of God Almighty has bestowed this status in order to prove the excellence of the spiritual blessings of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that he took me to this station of prophethood through the blessings of his, the Holy Prophet's grace. Therefore, I cannot be defined only as a prophet. Rather, I am a prophet in one respect and an ummati follower of the Holy Prophet in the other. My prophethood is a reflection of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and not an independent prophethood. This is why in the Hadith, as well as in the Revelation vouchsafed to me, I have been named a prophet, just as I have been named an ummati, so that it may be known that every excellence has been bestowed on me through following the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and through his medium. Footnote end. The instances of divine revelation that I have cited in this book also reveal what God Almighty says concerning me. Visavi Masih ibn Maryam. How can I reject 23 years of continuous revelations from God Almighty? I believe in this holy revelation of His, as I believe in all the revelations of God that have occurred before me. I also note that the Masih ibn Maryam is the last Khalifa of Musa, peace be upon him, and I am the last Khalifa of the Prophet, who is the best of messengers. Therefore, God willed that I should not be inferior to him. I am well aware that these words of mine will be intolerable to those in whose heart the love for Hazrat Masih borders on worship. However, I do not care for them. What can I do? How can I discard God's command, and how can I revert to darkness from the light that has been granted to me? In short, there is no contradiction in my statements. 
I only followed that which is revealed to me by Almighty God. Until I was enlightened by him, I continued to assert what I had said in the beginning. But when he bestowed knowledge upon me, I spoke to the contrary. I am a human being, and I do not claim to know what which is hidden. This is the fact, whether anyone accepts it or not. I do not know why God did so, but I know that God's jealousy is deeply aroused in heaven against the Christians. They have used such derogatory words against the holy prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as may well nigh rend the heavens asunder. In this manner, God manifests that the humble servants of this messenger are more exalted than the Israelite Masih ibn Maryam. Anyone who is infuriated and incensed by these words might as well die in his anger, but God has done as he willed, and God does what he wills. Does man have the power to object as to why God did so? It should also be borne in mind in this context that since I have been assigned the task to reform the entire world as my Lord and Master had come for the entire world, so have I been granted such powers and capabilities as were necessary for shouldering the burden commensurate with that grand duty. I've also been vouchsafed such spiritual verities and signs as were required by the age for incontrovertibly establishing the truth. There is no need that Hazrat Isa should have been bestowed such signs and spiritual rarities, for they were not required at that time. Footnote start. If someone were to say that Hazrat Isa raised the dead and that it was a great sign vouchsafed to him, the answer is that, literally speaking, raising the dead is against the teaching of the Holy Quran. It is small wonder if Isa brought terminally ill patients back to life, because such dead persons have been raised here too at my hands as was also done by the earlier prophets, for example, by the prophet Iyaz, Elijah. But the great signs which God is showing and will show are of a different kind altogether. Footnote end. As if Isa was therefore granted only those powers and capabilities that were needed for reforming the small community of Jews. However, we are heirs to the Holy Quran, whose teaching comprehends all excellencies and is meant for the entire world. Hazrat Isa was heir only to the Torah, whose teaching is incomplete and meant only for a certain people. That is why he had to emphasize those matters in the Anjil, Gospel, that were hidden and concealed in the Torah. But we cannot present any manner beyond the Holy Quran, for its teaching is complete and perfect, and unlike the Torah, does not stand in need of any Anjil. In view of the fact that it is quite clear and evident that the spiritual powers and capabilities granted to Hazrat Isa, peace be upon him, were limited to the extent required for reforming the Jewish people, undoubtedly His Excellencies too would be according to the same scale. As Allah the Almighty says in Surah Al-Hijr, chapter 15, verse 22, meaning that, With us are treasures of everything, but we do not send them down more than what is required. Thus, goes against divine wisdom to grant a prophet the type of knowledge for the reformation of his people which is inappropriate for those people. The same law of God operates even in the case of animals. For example, God has created the horse to be valuable in covering distances and to be of aid and assistance to its rider by galloping across every terrain. A goat, therefore, cannot compete with it in such characteristics, for it has not been created for that purpose. Similarly, God has created water for quenching thirst. Therefore, fire cannot be its substitute. 
Human nature is multidimensional and God has endowed it with a variety of capabilities, but the Injil has emphasized only one capability, namely forgiveness and clemency, as if the Injil had taken hold of only one out of the hundreds of branches of the human tree. This exposes the limits and extent of the inside of Hazrat Isa. On the other hand, the inside of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, encompasses the ultimate heights of human nature. This is why the Holy Quran was revealed in all its perfection. This is nothing to take offense at. Allah the Exalted says himself in Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 254, meaning that we have exalted some prophets above others. We have been enjoined to follow the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in all injunctions, moral qualities, and acts of worship. Had our nature not been endowed with such capabilities that could acquire by way of perfection, all the excellencies of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we would have never been enjoined to follow this sublime Prophet, because God Almighty does not require us to do what is beyond our capability. He himself says, Allah burdens not any soul beyond its capacity. Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 287. Since he knew that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, comprises the excellencies of all the prophets, he enjoined us to pray during our five prescribed prayers. In Surah Al-Fatiha, chapter 1, verse 6 to 7 of the Holy Quran, meaning that, O our God, incorporate in us all the excellencies of the earlier prophets, messengers, truthful, and martyrs. Thus, the sublime nature of this blessed Ummah can be judged by the fact that it has been enjoined to incorporate within itself all the various excellencies of the past. This injunction is meant for everyone, but the distinguished ranks of the elite can be deduced from the same. This is why the eminent Sufis of this Ummah have arrived at this hidden reality that the circle of the excellence of human potentialities has been perfected by this Ummah alone. The fact of the matter is that, just as a tiny seed is sown into the soil and having gradually reached its perfection, emerges forth as a towering tree, similarly, humanity continued to develop and human capabilities continued to advance in their excellence until, in the time of our Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, they reached their absolute perfection. The sum and substance of this discourse is that since I am the follower of a prophet who was the embodiment of all human excellencies and whose sharia was absolutely perfect and complete and was meant for the reformation of the entire world, therefore, I have been granted the faculties that are needed for the reformation of the entire world. Thus, how can there be any doubt about Hazrat Masih, peace be upon him, was not granted the natural faculties which were granted to me, for he had come only for one particular people? Had he been in my place, he could not have done the work that God's bounty enabled me to do on account of the nature bestowed upon him. And this is a proclamation of Allah's blessing, not a boastful act. In the same way, it is obvious that if Hazrat Musa, peace be upon him, had appeared in the place of our holy prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he could not have performed that task and that if the Torah had been revealed in place of the Holy Quran, it could never have performed the task that the Holy Quran performed. The spiritual ranks of human beings lie behind the veil of the unknown.
It is not appropriate to criticize or raise objections in this matter. Is it beyond the omnipotent God who created Hazrat Isa, peace be upon him, to create another like him or better than him? Footnote start. No one can fathom the extent of God Almighty's works. Hazrat Musa, peace be upon him, was a grand prophet in the house of Israel, whom God Almighty gave the Torah. On account of his greatness and majesty, even Balaam Beor was cast into hell when he dared to confront him, and God likened him to a dog. Yet it was the same Musa who was embarrassed before the spiritual knowledge of a nomad and could not decipher those secrets of the unknown, as God Almighty says. Then they found one of our servants upon whom we had bestowed our mercy and whom we had taught knowledge from ourselves. Surah Al-Kahf, chapter 18, verse 66 of the Holy Quran. Footnote and... Show me if there is any verse in the Holy Quran to prove this. Extremely accursed would be the one who denied a verse of the Holy Quran. Otherwise, how can I say anything that is contrary to the facts and is in contravention of the holy revelations, which for nearly 23 years have been comforting me and are accompanied by thousands of divine testimonies and extraordinary signs? The works of God Almighty are not without appropriateness and wisdom. He saw that a human being had been deified without any reason and was being worshipped by 400 million people, so he sent me at a time when his doctrine had been exaggerated to the extreme, and he granted me the names of all the prophets but singled out the name of Masih ibn Maryam for me, and bestowed upon me the blessing and favor which was not bestowed upon him, so that people should realize that grace rests with God. He bestows it upon whomsoever he wills. If I say all this on my own, then I am a liar. But if God bears witness to me with his signs, then denying me is contrary to righteousness. Prophet Daniel, Daniel is also on record having said that my advent is the time of the manifestation of the full grandeur of God, and in my time is the final battle between angels and satans. God will show such signs in this time as he has never shown, and as it were, God himself shall descend upon the earth. As he says in Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 211 of the Holy Quran, meaning that on that day your God shall come among the clouds. In other words, God will display his grandeur and show his countenance through a human manifestation. Doctrines of disbelief and making associates with God held great sway, and he remained silent and became like a hidden treasure. But now the doctrine of disbelief and worship of man has reached its peak, while Islam has been trampled under its feet. Therefore God says, I shall descend upon the earth and unleash such signs of wrath, the likes of which have never been shown since the creation of mankind. The underlying wisdom in this is that the defense must be proportional to the enemy's offense. Since the worshippers of man have glorified disbelief and that very glorification has reached its extreme, God will not fight himself, will not give any sword to men, nor will there be jihad by the sword. But of course, he shall show his might. The Jews believe that two messiahs will appear. The last messiah, which refers to the messiah of the present age, will be superior to the first messiah. As for the Christians, they believe in only one Messiah, but claim that the same Messiah ibn Maryam who appeared earlier shall appear in great power and glory in his second coming, 
and will adjudicate between the different fates of the world. They also contend that he will appear with such glory that his first coming shall be no comparison to it. In any case, both these groups believe that the prospective Messiah, who will come in the latter days, will be greater in his grandeur and mighty signs than the first Messiah or his first coming. Islam, too, names the last Messiah as the arbiter and designates him to be the one who would adjudicate all the religious denominations of the world and would slay the disbelievers simply through his breath. This means that God will be with him and his attention and prayer will work like lightning. He will furnish such irrefutable arguments as if to decimate them. In short, neither Ahl Kitab, people of the book, namely Jews and Christians, nor the people of Islam believe that the first Messiah, Messiah, is superior to the Messiah to come. Jews, for their part, by believing in two Messiahs, consider the latter Messiah to be superior, and as for those who erroneously believe in only one Messiah, they too proclaim his second coming to be utterly glorious and consider the first coming as nothing in comparison to it. Thus, whereas God and his messenger and all the prophets have pronounced the Messiah of the latter days to be superior on account of his achievements, it is a satanic insinuation to ask why I declare myself superior to Messiah ibn Maryam. My dear ones, since I have proven that Messiah ibn Maryam has died and the Messiah to come is none other than I, therefore anyone who considers the first Messiah to be superior should establish by explicit statement of Ahadith and the Qur'an that the Messiah who was to come is of no importance. Neither can he be called a prophet nor an arbiter, and that whatever merit there is, it belongs to the first Messiah. God, in keeping with his promise, has sent me. Now quarrel with God, but of course, I am not just a prophet. Rather, I am a prophet on the one hand, and on the other, I am also an Ummati, follower of the Holy Prophet so that the holy power and perfect grace of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, be proven. Question 2. Your Exalted Holiness, you have written on hundreds, indeed thousands of occasions that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not draw the sword in support of the faith. But your letter to Abdul Hakim contains the sentence that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, shed streams of blood in the invitation to the religion of Islam. What does this mean? Answer. I still say that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not spread Islam by coercion. The sword that was raised was not meant to threaten people to accept Islam. Rather, it was done on account of two reasons. For one, these battles were defensive in nature, because when the disbelievers attacked with the intent to decimate Islam by the use of the sword, there was no option left except to draw the sword in self-defense. Second, long before these battles, it had been prophesied in the Holy Quran that God would send down chastisements on those who did not accept this prophet, be it from heaven or from earth, or would make some of them taste the sword of some others. There were also other prophecies to the same effect which were fulfilled at their appointed time. Now it should be understood that in the letter that I wrote to Abdul Hakim Khan, I only meant that if belief in the Messenger of Allah is unnecessary, why did God Almighty show His wrath for the sake of this Messenger 
such that streams of the blood of disbelievers were made to flow. It is true that no coercion was used for Islam, but since it is promised in the Holy Quran that those who deny and reject this messenger will be killed, in order for them to be chastised, the occasion to punish them came about when those disbelievers themselves took the initiative to wage wars. It was then that those who had drawn the sword were dispatched by the sword. After all, if rejecting the messenger was an inconsequential matter in the sight of God, and salvation was possible despite that rejection, what was the need of sending down this chastisement, which came down in such a manner that has no match in world history? Allah the Exalted says in Surah Al-Mu'min, chapter 40, verse 29 of the Holy Quran, meaning that if this messenger is a liar, he will perish himself, but if he is truthful, some promises made regarding your chastisement shall be fulfilled. Footnote start. The term some was adopted because it is not necessary concerning prophecies compromising warnings that they should all be fulfilled, for some of them can end with forgiveness. Footnote end. Now the point to ponder is that if belief in the messenger of God is unnecessary, then why was the warning of chastisement issued in the case of failure to believe? It is obvious that it is one thing to coerce someone into accepting your faith and to make one Muslim by the sword, but it is quite another to punish someone who disobeys, confronts, and torments a true messenger. It is not a condition that one should become a Muslim to avoid chastisement. Rather, those who, on top of rejection, came forth in conflict, became deserving of death. Even then, God Almighty offered them to reprieve that if they chose to accept Islam, that punishment would be averted. Then again, God Almighty says at another place, in Surah Al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 5 of the Holy Quran, meaning that, those who denied the signs of God Almighty, for them there is a severe punishment, and God is mighty, Lord of retribution. Now it is quite clear that in this verse too, the disbelievers are promised punishment. It was therefore inevitable that they should have been visited by chastisement. Thus, God inflicted upon them the chastisement of the sword. Again he says in the Holy Quran elsewhere, Surah Al-Maidah, chapter 5, Verse 34 of the Holy Quran, part number 6. Meaning, verily, the retribution of those who wage war against God and his messenger and hasten to create disorder in the earth is nothing but that they be slain or crucified, or their hands and feet be cut off on opposite sides, or they be exiled and kept incarcerated. This is the disgrace for them in this world, and in the hereafter they shall suffer a great punishment. Therefore, if in the sight of God Almighty the disobedience and defiance of our noble prophet was an inconsequential matter, then why did the Book of Allah contain the commandment to harshly punish the disbelievers who were monotheists, for example the Jews, with death, and that too in a variety of ways? And why were such grave punishments inflicted when there were monotheists on both sides and there were no polytheists in either group? Despite this, no mercy was shown to the Jews, and those monotheists were ruthlessly killed simply because of their rejecting and fighting the messenger, so much so that once 10,000 Jews were killed in a single day, although they had denied and defied only in defense of their own faith. Footnote start. Historians have reported varying accounts of how many members of the Jewish tribe of Banu Qurayza were killed in one day. 
Some numbered them between 400 to 700, whereas others report 800 or 900. There may be some reports exceeding that. It seems that the intended number here may have been 1,000, but inaccurately written by the scribe as 10,000. The thousands mentioned in the first sentence of next paragraph may refer to the large number killed in different wars on other occasions. Allah knows best. Publisher. Footnote N. However, it ought to be borne in mind that though thousands of Jews were slain, it was not to force them to accept Islam, but was only because they had fought against the Messenger of God. That is why, in the sight of God, they were worthy of punishment and their blood was spilled upon the earth like water. It is therefore obvious that if Tawhid was sufficient, the Jews were not guilty of any crime. They too were monotheists. Why did they become deserving of punishment in the sight of God, merely for rejecting and fighting the Holy Prophet? Question 3. Your Honor, the letter we wrote to Abdul Hakim says that faith, based only upon natural instinct, is something accursed. I am unable to understand what this means also. The answer. The sum and substance of what I have written is that faith, which is not acquired through the Messenger of Allah, and only exists in the case where human nature feels the need for the existence of God Almighty, as is the faith of philosophers, generally ends up as accursed. Since such faith is not free from darkness, those people soon slip from their faith into atheism. At first, they emphasize the book of nature and the laws of nature. But unaccompanied as they are by the light of the lamp of prophethood, they soon lose their way in darkness and are misguided. Blessed and secured is the faith which is acquired through the messenger of God, for such faith is not confined to the extent that there is a need for the existence of God. Rather, hundreds of heavenly signs carry it to the point that God does indeed exist. Therefore, the fact of the matter is that faith in the prophets, peace be upon them, serves to fortify faith in God-like pegs. Belief in God can only be sustained so long as one believes in the messenger. When faith in the messenger is lost, faith in God also suffers a blow, and mere belief in the oneness of God readily leads one astray. For this very reason, I said that faith based only upon natural instinct is accursed. In other words, someone whose faith is based only on the laws of nature and who relies exclusively upon nature and does not partake of the light of the messenger deteriorates into accursed thinking. In short, whoever believes on the basis of nature alone and is estranged from the messenger of God and the miracles of the messenger possesses faith akin to a wall of sand. You will be ruined tomorrow if not today. Real faith is only that faith which is acquired after recognizing the messenger of God. Such faith knows no decline, nor does it have an evil end. Similarly, the belief of a person whose submission to the messenger is superficial, who fails to recognize him and is unaware of his light, is also of little value. In the end, such a person is bound to become an apostate, as Musalma Kazab, Abdullah ibn Abi Sara and Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh turned apostates in the time of the Holy Prophet. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Judas Iscariot and 500 other Christians turned apostates in the time of Hazrat Isa and Jarah Din of Jammu and Abdul Hakim Khan in this time of mine. Question 4. In your earlier books, Izala Yawham, 
etc. It is written that the prophecies of earthquakes, pestilences, wars, and famines can hardly be referred to as prophetic, but now it has been noted in a number of writings that your honor has acclaimed these very prophecies to be grand prophecies. Answer. It is not correct that I have pronounced those very prophecies to be grand. Greatness or lack of greatness of anything is indicated by its quantity and quality, and also by the accompanying circumstances as being unique or ordinary. The country about which Hazrat Isa, peace be upon him, prophesied that it will be visited by the plague and earthquakes is such wherein plague regularly breaks out, and like Kashmir, the Seb country too is hit by earthquakes as a matter of course and also by famines. And the prophecy of Hazrat Masih, the Messiah, makes no mention of any extraordinary earthquake or of any extraordinary pestilence or plague. In this condition, no reasonable person can view such prophecies as great and significant. Footnote start. Of course, it is quite possible that the original prophecies might have been altered, whereas one single Injil, gospel, has been turned into a multitude of Injils. How can it be a far-fetched notion to think that some text was in fact altered? Our objection, therefore, is against the current Injils, gospels, God has provided us with the occasion to raise these objections by declaring that these injils have been tampered and altered. But in view of the circumstances of the country, about which I foretold the plague and terrible earthquakes, these prophecies are indeed grand prophecies. For a study of the history of this country, extending over hundreds of years, will not prove that this country had ever suffered from the plague let alone the kind of plague that killed hundreds of thousands of people in a short period of time. Footnote start. It must also be remembered that prophecies by Hazrat Masih, as contained in the Gospels, comprise only mild and soft words. There is no mention therein of any severe or dreadful earthquake or dreadful plague. But my prophecies regarding these two events contain expressions which declare them to be The text of my prophecy regarding the plague is as follows. No part of this country shall remain immune from the plague. There will be severe destruction, and the destruction will last over a long period of time. Now, can anyone prove that the kind of havoc caused by the plague, in accordance with the prophecy, was ever witnessed in this country before? Certainly not. As for the earthquake, that was also not an ordinary prophecy on my part. Rather, the prophecy contained the words that a section of this country would be destroyed by it. As is evident, the havoc wrought by this earthquake in Kangara and the Bhaksukhaz volcano is without parallel in 2,000 years' history. British researchers, too, have testified to it. Therefore, in these circumstances, criticizing me amounts to reckless haste. Question 5. Your Honor has averred in several of your announcements that the world is not subjected to divine chastisement because of corruption in religion but because of insolence, mischief, and ridicule leveled at the messengers of God. Now you have designated the recent earthquakes in San Francisco and elsewhere as sign in your support. One fails to understand how these earthquakes have been caused by the rejection of your claim. Answer. I've never said that all these earthquakes in San Francisco and other places have been caused only because of the rejection of my claim and that no other factor has played any role in it. But of course, I do say that the rejection of my claim has been the cause for the occurrence of these earthquakes.
The fact of the matter is that all the prophets of God agree that divine practice has always been operative such that when the world commits sins of all kinds and when a variety of their sins piles up, it is then that God commissions someone from himself, but a part of the world rejects him. It is then that the messenger's advent becomes a catalyst for the punishment of the other mischievous people too, who have already qualified as being guilty. It is not necessary for a person who is punished for his earlier sins to be aware that a prophet or messenger of Allah has been raised in the world in that age. As Allah the Exalted says, We never punish until we have sent a messenger. Surah Bani Israel, chapter 17, verse 16 of the Holy Quran. Thus, I meant no more than to say that the rejection of my claim could possibly be the cause of these earthquakes. This indeed has ever been the practice of God that no one can deny. Hence, although the real cause of the chastisement of the residents of San Francisco and of other places who have died due to the earthquake and other calamities was their past sins, these earthquakes that killed them constituted a sign of my truth. The reason is that, since the beginning, it has been the way of Allah that the mischievous are killed at the time of the advent of a messenger, and also because in Brahina Ahmadiyya and many other books of mine, I had foretold that in my time many extraordinary earthquakes and other calamities shall strike the world, and the world shall witness widespread destruction. Thus, there is no doubt that subsequent to my prophecies, the occurrences of a series of earthquakes and other calamities in the world is a sign of my truth. Keep in mind that, regardless of which part of the world the messenger of God is rejected in, other offenders are also apprehended at the time of that rejection, including those who happen to live in other countries and have not even heard of that messenger. This is what happened in the time of Noah that an entire world was overtaken by chastisement due to the rejection of a single people. Indeed, not even animals and birds were spared in that chastisement. In short, this is how the way of Allah operates. When the repudiation of one who is truthful exceeds all limits, and when he is persecuted, the world is visited by a variety of calamities. All the divine scriptures testify to this, and the Holy Quran also affirms it. For example, the land of Egypt was overtaken by calamities of different kinds because of the repudiation of Hazrat Musa. There was a rain of lice, of frogs, and of blood, and there was a widespread famine, although people who lived in remote places in the land of Egypt had not even heard of Hazrat Musa, nor were they guilty of any sin in this regard. Moreover, the firstborn of all Egyptians were killed. Pharaoh remained safe from these calamities for quite some time, whereas those who were simply unaware were the first to be killed. Also, in the days of Hazrat Isa, those who had tried to kill Hazrat Isa by crucifixion were not hurt at all and continued to live in comfort. But after as many as 40 years when that century was drawing to a close, thousands of Jews were slain by Titus of Rome. Moreover, the plague also broke out. The Holy Quran affirms that this chastisement was solely due to the rejection of Hazrat Isa. Similarly, in the days of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, there was a seven-year famine. 
It was mostly the poor who died in this famine, and the principal leaders who were the real mischievous mongers and persecutors remained safe from retribution for a certain period. To sum up, the divine practice is operative such that whenever someone comes from God and he is rejected, a variety of calamity descends from the heavens, and mostly those are seas who have nothing to do with this rejection. Then gradually, the leaders of the disbelievers are apprehended. The turn of big mischief mongers comes in the end. It is this point at which the Holy Quran indicates in the verse of Surah Al-Rad, chapter 13, verse 42 of the Holy Quran, meaning that, slowly but surely, we continue to come closer to the earth. This statement of mine contains the answer to the objections raised by some ignorant people who alleged that it was the Malvis who had pronounced the verdict of disbelief. But the poor people died of the plague and thousands belonging to the hills of Kangra and mountain of Baksu perished in the earthquake. What was their fault? What rejection were they guilty of? Beware, therefore, that when any messenger of God is rejected, whether it is one by a particular people or is in a particular part of the land, jealousy of God Almighty is aroused to send down a widespread chastisement, and calamities descend from the heavens in general. And often, it so happens that the real culprits who are the actual source of mischief are caught later, just as Pharaoh remained unharmed by the signs of divine wrath, which Hazrat Musa showed in his presence. Only the poor perished, but in the end, God drowned Pharaoh along with his hordes. This is the way of God which no knowledgeable person can deny.